0: Well, hey, everybody, so great to see you. Whether you're here in the room or those of you joining us uh, through the online channels, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you along for the ride. Now, if you're joining us for the first time, uh, you should know that we're in the middle of a series we've called Virtual Israel. And I'm having an absolute blast sharing this content. Um, I've been working on it for a few years now in preparation for some upcoming trips to Israel, Keystone plans to take in the near future. And each week I get to introduce you to a site that we hope to visit uh, and then teach some of the content that I plan to teach at that site. And so far, it's been great for me because I get to test drive some of this content. And and hopefully, if you've been with us, it's been great for you because you get to take a virtual trip to Israel during a pandemic. That's kind of a win-win. And it wasn't funny. You at home, I'm sure, are laughing hysterically. So I'm going to give you a second. Anyway, uh, to get us going today, I need to introduce you to another little-known, but as it turns out, incredibly significant site. This one is located about 25 miles northeast of Capernaum. Uh, that's the town Jesus used as a base of operation. Here's a map to kind of get your bearings. You see the Sea of Galilee right here. Um, and, and this town in the first century was home, uh, or this site rather, was home to a town called Caesarea Philippi. And it sits right at the foot of Israel's highest peak, Mount Hermon. That's where the headwaters of the Jordan River All begin. And so I I want to show you a 25 second video to kind of get you a sense of what that site looks like should you visit it today. So let's check this out. Now, the town of Caesarea Philippi was originally founded around the year 333 BC. So 333 BC, easy to remember, by a guy you may remember from your high school history class. His name was Alexander the Great. Um, And he founded the city while he was on his way to conquer much of the ancient world. And as the story goes, uh, during a military campaign, Alexander came into the region around Caesarea Philippi and was absolutely captivated by a large cave out of which flowed a vigorous stream. And the reason he was fascinated by this is that he, along with many other ancient people, believed that such caves provided passageways to the underworld for the Greek gods to come and go from our world. And so they designated these caves gates of Hades or gates of hell. Uh, Well, Alexander immediately recognized the ceremonial potential of this site. And so he commissioned the construction of a city and he dedicated it to Pan, a Greek god of fertility, who he believed could help him succeed in his military campaigns. He even named the city Paneus, and eventually it became the world headquarters for the worship of Pan. Now, Pan was always pictured as a hyper-sexualized deity, uh, and I'll spare you the details. You can look online later if you dare. Um, Other than to say that he resembled a sort of perverted human-goat hybrid, According to the tradition, yeah, that, there you go. I found him online too. He's good, right? Yeah. According to tradition, Pan was described as a highly mischievous deity who was not necessarily benevolent. Uh, Greek mythology relays many cautionary tales regarding involvement with Pan. It was like, if you want to stay safe, don't invoke Pan. Nevertheless, in Jesus' day, scholars suggest that as many as 300,000 people per year would travel to Caesarea Philippi in order to visit Pan's temple and to seek his blessing on their lives. Uh, They believed that this blessing could be secured by Uh, how do I keep this? PG-13. Uh, the blessing can be secured by participating in inappropriate ceremonial activities involving goats. Long, awkward pause. Yeah, there was even a platform next to Pan's temple called the Shrine of the Dancing Goats, where apparently people danced with goats in order to try to persuade Pan to positively intervene in matters of their fertility. Hopefully you're catching my drift here. <laughs> Seriously, you like, you can't make this stuff up. When I, was, when I was digging into this material, I was like, this is unbelievable. And you're probably thinking what I was thinking. They did not cover this in Sunday school growing up in church, right? And then you think, well, I'm actually kind of glad they didn't cover this in Sunday school because I might have needed some counseling, right? And it would have been very awkward if you presented it on the flanagraph board. <clears throat> anyway, um, yeah. It's not entirely surprising uh, that ancient sources record that pan-worship could often get completely out of control. In fact, at times, things got so chaotic and extreme that scholars tell us that people actually invented new words to describe things. Uh, Words like pandemic and pandemonium and panic and pansexual. You, you kind of get the idea. I mean, I say all that to say, in the first century, Caesarea Philippi was not a great place for a family-friendly vacation. Yeah? Honestly, it was a place that would make Las Vegas blush. <laughs> and And it was undeniably one of those places that good Jewish boys from the fishing villages on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee, like Capernaum, boys like Jesus' first disciples, would have been taught to avoid at all costs. They they would have grown grown up hearing stories of the sorts of things that happened at Caesarea Philippi, dark things that took people and and even creation in the wrong direction. To religious Jews, the city was a cartoonish picture of what can happen when when God is absent and culture and things go completely off the rails. So you can imagine how surprised, maybe better how shocked those first Disciples of Jesus would have been that day 2,000 years ago when he led them on a two days walk north to pay a visit to Caesarea Philippi near the end of his life. Now, Jesus did this because he knew something his disciples couldn't possibly have known at the time. Caesarea Philippi was actually the perfect place to present his first followers with a mission, a mission that would carry them for the rest of their lives. He knew that the context of Caesarea Philippi provided the perfect spot to have a conversation that would leave an indelible and necessary imprint on the psyche of his first followers. And so he walked his disciples to the forbidden city. And, as I imagine it, on a hillside overlooking Pan's temple complex, he asked them a question. Now, Jesus' disciple Matthew, who would have been there that day, records what happened in his account of the life of Jesus. He writes the following He tells us, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, you should know that when Jesus says the, uses the phrase Son of Man, he's actually speaking of himself. He's basically asking them, Who do people think that I am? What's the word on the streets? And, and so the disciples replied, They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So their response is is kind of interesting because like without hesitation, the disciples rattle off a list of some of Israel's greatest prophets, which actually tells us something about how Jesus was being perceived by the people of Israel. I mean, John the Baptist was a popular teacher and a contemporary of Jesus who had at the time been recently beheaded by Israel's King Herod. Uh, Elijah, I mean, he was the ultimate Old Testament picture of passion and radical commitment to God. And, and And then Jeremiah, he was a prophet who had been persecuted by religious leaders who didn't appreciate his relentless challenges for them to turn from their sin. So apparently, people in the first century at this time were regarding Jesus at least as highly as some of Israel's most revered prophets. But what was undeniable is that at this point in his life, everywhere Jesus went, he was met by crowds who were fascinated by him and who were desperate to hear him teach and to watch him heal. The power of God was flowing in a new and unprecedented way, and people wanted to witness it. And people recognized Jesus as a, as a powerful voice who brought challenge and hope and correction and light and truth. Now, as Matthew's account continues, Jesus asks his disciples a follow-up question. He phrases it this way. He says, okay, that's great. That's who they think I am. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? In other words, nobody has had more proximity to me than you have. So after all you've seen, after all you've heard, after all you've experienced after all the conversations as we're walking from village to village and the interactions and the observations, what have you concluded? Looking at these 12 guys, who am I? Well, in response to his question, Peter, who is likely the oldest of the disciples and absolutely the most impulsive of the disciples, responds immediately, without missing a beat. Matthew records, he says, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. God. Now, And it's worth noting that uh, this passage was originally recorded in the Greek language. And in the Greek, the word order here emphasizes the word living. It's like Peter says to Jesus, I believe that you're the son of the living God. Not, Not a lifeless God like Pan, whose worship can only lead people into darkness and chaos. You're the one God promised to send generations ago to our ancestors to once again lead your people to freedom. And to once again remind them of their calling to be a light into the nations. And so, yeah, after all I've seen and all I've experienced, I know who you are. You're the Christ. That's the Greek term. The the Hebrew term would be Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the one our people have been waiting for for hundreds of years. It's like Peter looks at Jesus with tears in his eyes and goes, "I, I can just see it so clearly. Well, Matthew records for us that Jesus' responds to Peter and Jesus' response to Peter is actually pretty amazing. Here's, here's what he says. Uh, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, that's Peter, for this, this observation of who I am, was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And we read this and we go, oh, that's kind of a nice thing to say. But let me tell you what Jesus was saying to Peter. He basically was saying, listen, Peter, you're right about who I am, but, but just so we're crystal clear, you're not smart enough to have figured that out on your own. God told you. And I love that. So consider yourself blessed. It's like Jesus wants to serve Peter a little bit of humble pie in this moment, right? So good. Anyway, Jesus continues. um, And as Jesus continues, he actually makes one of the most significant proclamations in all of human history, overlooking the temple complex to Pan at Caesarea Philippi. Here's what Jesus says next. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, the reason I say this is one of the most significant proclamations in human history is is because Catholics and Protestants have different theories about what Jesus meant here. Uh, Catholic scholars argue that because Peter's name in Greek is Petros, which literally translates rocky, when Jesus says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church, he's actually talking about Peter. They believe that in this moment, Jesus designates Peter as the first pope and that every pope since has sat on the throne of St. Peter. So that's kind of how the Catholics have interpreted that passage. Uh, Protestants, on the other hand, see the rock on which Jesus promises to build his church as Peter's proclamation. So not so much Peter himself, but the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ, the son of the living God. They believe that Jesus intends his church to gather around this belief and carry this message of God's astonishing grace and mercy and love as demonstrated when Jesus would die on the cross to the world. But, so that's what the Protestants think. But I want to argue that there's a third option that we should consider given the context of this conversation because Jesus could have had this conversation with his disciples anywhere. And he instead takes them for a 25-mile walk, which is almost all uphill, by the way, and overlooks a town that they, were, they knew they were never supposed to be near. And, and he has the conversation there. And so why? I have a theory. I, I, I think that it's possible that when Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church, well, he was actually pointing here. Here. The, 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 the rock on which you find all of this, the cave, the gates of Hades themselves, the, the temple to Pan and the shrine of the dancing goats. And directing his gaze to this rock platform uh, you know, and people doing unthinkable things, it's like Jesus, Jesus may be saying to his disciples, listen, on this rock, like places like Caesarea, Philippi, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was undeniably one of the darkest places on planet earth. And we know that Jesus wants his light to shine in dark places. Remember, remember, that, you know, he says, even the gates of hell don't stand a chance against it. That would have made a lot of sense to his disciples in that moment, standing where they were standing, seeing what they were seeing. It's almost like I wonder, is Jesus predicting here that his church will impact even the darkest corners of our world? And is he telling his followers, those first disciples, to take his light and his truth and carry it into the world and build his church? Well, we can't be sure, but it's certainly possible because that's exactly what those first disciples did. I think in this moment, it's very possible that Jesus was presenting them with a new mission for their lives. I think there's another piece of information that we should consider as well. Um, he talks about the gates of hell. And just just if you think about a gate, a gate is a defensive structure. You build it to control access and to keep people out. And Jesus basically seems to tell his disciples, his followers, that they are to be on the offensive. Don't stand back and build gates, but you run at the darkness. You storm the gates of hell. And I think, I, I think as they absorbed that moment and that conversation that day, I think it was sort of a wake-up call for those first disciples, because I, I wonder, as they thought about their future with Jesus, I wonder what they imagined. Like, if we outlive him, what does life look like? And in this moment, they caught the sense that they weren't going to spend the rest of their lives lecturing like traveling from synagogue to synagogue as sort of celebrities who'd been with Jesus. Instead, they actually were going to spend the rest of their lives showing a culture that had gone off the rails a better way to live, a way that had been designed by the creator himself. And here's the thing that's so compelling to me. That's what they did, and they changed the world. Our world is undeniably a better place today because of the influence of followers of Jesus. Not to say there haven't been dark chapters in the history of the church, but the world has been forever changed by the influence of followers of Jesus. Followers who took their charge to storm the gates of Hades seriously. In fact, in a recent book came out a couple of years ago called 12 Rules for Life. Author Jordan Peterson summarizes the historic impact of Christianity and he does it brilliantly. I want it's a little longer quote than I would normally use, but I think it's worth sharing. Here's what Peterson writes. He says, "Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master and commoner and noblemen alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. This idea that all people matter entered human history through the teachings of Jesus and his followers. He goes on. He says the implicit, transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. He said, it's nothing short of a miracle that the hierarchical slave-based societies of our ancestors reorganized themselves under the sway of a political or ethical religious revelation such that ownership and absolute dominion of another person came to be viewed as wrong. He says, we forget that the opposite was self-evident through most of human history. The society produced by Christianity was far less barbaric than the pagan, even the Roman ones, that it replaced. And if you keep reading, Peterson goes on to note that throughout most of human history, society operated on an unquestioned set of rules. Like the biggest and strongest and most powerful did whatever they wanted to do. And people would only help people who had the ability to help them in return. And they would only serve people who could return the favor later. And they would only be generous to people who who had the ability to be generous back at them. They would only love people who were lovable. And Jesus walks into that very developed culture with hundreds of years of momentum behind it and announced a new way of doing life. A life lived by the rules of a new kingdom under a new king that was unlike anything that came before it. And he looked at his followers and taught his followers to assume a different sort of relational posture towards other people. He wanted their lives to be marked by radical, self-sacrificial acts of love and grace. He wanted them to be people of compassion and generosity who gave of their time, gave of their resources without expecting anything in return. I mean, Jesus told his followers to do for those who couldn't do anything for them. And to give and share and serve people they didn't even like. In essence, Jesus and his disciples have shifted the world's concept of love. They embodied the teachings of Jesus by clothing the needy, by feeding the hungry, by carrying water to the thirsty, They visited people who were in prison and they invited strangers over for dinner in order to build relationship with them. And here's where this gets so compelling. As those first followers of Jesus actually did these things, the world was watching. The Roman citizens were watching. And they came to realize and recognize that a new kind of love had somehow come to planet Earth. And they couldn't help but be drawn to it. Guess what I'm trying to say is that everything happened just like Jesus predicted it would happen. 2,000 years ago, standing with his disciples on a hill overlooking the city of Caesarea Philippi. And it happened just like Jesus said it would happen, because as it turns out, this is our big idea for today. Jesus' message of grace is an unstoppable force in our world. It's unstoppable because it's powerful. The message of grace and hope and truth It's like people are drawn to it because something deep within them resonates. This is how it was supposed to be. And I've never seen it before and I've never tasted it before and I've never touched it before. But man, there it is. And I want to be a part of that, a better way to be human. So before I let you go, um, I need to ask you a question. And it's, it's actually a you know, pretty, pretty simple question, but just like, what does this have to do with you and with me? I mean, this charge Jesus made to his disciples 2,000 years ago, what does this have to do with you and me? Well, I would argue that it has a lot to do with you and me. And it has to do with you and me, whether you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, or if you're here just because you're curious or someone invited you and promised they'd take you to Panera afterwards or whatever, right? But if you're here just kicking the tires, I think there's something here for you too. But first, if you're here and and you, like me, are a follower of Jesus, there's a real sense that the baton is in your hands. It's almost like if you think of the history of humanity as a marathon or a race where where people, a relay race, where the baton is being passed from one generation to the next, there's a sense in which because you're alive right now here in this place, you are holding the baton of faith in Jesus. And it's been passed to you by Christians who have run their race of faith, never perfectly, but, but, but run their race of their faith, who have loved like Jesus loved and who have served like Jesus served, who've embodied light and grace and truth in their world, in their relationships. And now it's up to you. It's, it's up to me. It's up to us to take the light of Jesus into the dark corners of our world, to put his light on display so that other people around us and people in the next generation are drawn to that light as well. It's like that's been the mission of the church since the very beginning. And so really practically this week, I'm going to challenge you and I'm challenging myself to do something for someone you wouldn't do if you weren't a follower of Jesus. It's like, make this world a little more like he desires it to be this week. Chase away a little bit of darkness somewhere, somehow. And so that's for those of us that are followers of Jesus. If you're joining us today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, my hope as I was preparing this content is that, that something in you was moved today by what Jesus intended for his church. Because we often hear about the missteps and the mishaps and the mistakes of the church. But if you rip away all of that and you look back to where this started, it was to be a gift to the world. That Jesus came among us as one of us to rescue us and to show us a better way to live in the here and now, to make this world a better place. And and Jesus came among us because God so loved the world that he was willing to do whatever it took to restore what had been lost, the peace that had been disrupted between himself and the people that he loves. That was the mission of Jesus. That was the message of Jesus. And that is the mission and message of his church. That's who we are as individuals and as a people. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're called to do with our lives. And if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, in this moment, once again, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for engaging a world that so quickly goes completely off the rails. Thank you for extending us grace. Thank you for offering us a chance to be rescued by the blood of your son, Jesus. And thank you for giving us an invitation to live in a new way, to be a part of what you're doing on planet Earth. Uh, This week, I pray that you would awaken in us a new sense of calling, a new sense of mission, that we might serve you, that we might put the way of Jesus on display in a way that makes things better here and now. So we bless you, we honor you, we celebrate you in the matchless name of your son, the Messiah, the Christ who came for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Everyone said amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.